0: As a, so I'm a very, I'm I'm still a new parent, my oldest being six. And so we're still finding places for her to go. So we're trying to find things for her to get connected with. And we chose soccer, lots of running, kicking a ball, give it a shot. So we got her on a soccer team and uh, I thought, oh, we'll just drop her off. It'll be great. And then they needed an assistant coach and I am now an assistant coach (laughs) in children's soccer, which is remarkable because I know nothing about soccer at all. I'm like I'm like Forrest Gump in boot camp. Like, why are you here to do whatever you tell me to do, Coach Chris? Like, that's my job. So I, I'm his I'm his arms and legs. That's what I am. Uh, but it's interesting to coach such young kids because it's it's like kindergarten, first grade age, and I have never seen anyone so confused with my life as those kids during the game. It is unbelievable. We have this one command. It's one of the most common ones you say in a game. Happens every turnover. Put your feet on the midfield line. It may sound complicated. Let me break it down for you. There's a line in the middle of the field, and they have to put their feet on it. The end. It's bright white. The field is green. That's all they got to do. And you tell it to them, and they respond as if you're trying to explain to them the Pythagorean theorem. They are completely confused. <laughs> They're walking in circles. Like They just start going in a circle, and be like when, when he says stop, that's when I'll know that I'm at the midfield line. This happens every time you score a goal. You have to go to the midfield line. Another command that's really common, you'll hear uh, Coach Chris, also Coach Flowers, which I know that's his last name. I just say Chris because Coach Flowers is going to make me Google. So Coach Chris, (laughs) great coach, by the way, but one of the more common things you'll hear him say is, same team, same team, Red, same team, because... They think that the object of the goal or the game is to just go find a ball and kick it. And so their own teammate will have it and they're stealing it from each other. Um, I don't know if it's just us that have that problem or the other coaches have given up and have quit saying same team. I guess my theory is, is that when the midfield line goes missing, teamwork also goes missing. Um, at the end of every game, there's a cheer and, and that's, that's the teamwork moment, right? We've been stealing the ball from each other. We can't find the midfield line and the cheer is simple. Everyone puts a hand in the center, dragons on three, one, two, three, dragons. Really simple. And it goes on forever because the kids want to have their hand on top. And this is after you spent five minutes just getting them to put a hand in the middle, and it's just going on and on. So we, I, Coach Chris was like, all right, stop, no, no, no more, no more, this is it, all the hands are in, stop. And it came to a point, he does this every time now, he goes, all right, Coach's hand's on top, my hand's on top, my hand's on top, no one put your hand on top of my hand. And am like, Okay. One, two, three, and then this brief moment of little kid teamwork, dragons, all at the same time. And that dynamic of, of stop, 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 okay, my hand's on top now, is very much the dynamic that we're getting from Paul today. He's writing to the Philippians. For some reason, there's some kind of jostling. There's some sort of issues going on within this church he's writing a letter to. They've got, There's factions, and, and they're trying to compare, and it really is a who's going to have the upper hand kind of moment. You've got people saying, I was led to Christ by Paul himself. Other people saying, I was a proselyte who was converted to Judaism first and then converted to Christianity. I was trained under a rabbi. You've got people saying, I'm an actual Jew, and it's going on and on. And so you've got these divisions in the church. And in the same way, Paul is going to end this fighting by putting his hand on top and saying, I'm the one who actually has the most status here. And let me tell you, the status is stupid. Jesus on three, one, two, three, Jesus, and they're all (laughs) united. So we're going to jump into Philippians. We're going to be in chapter three. And does someone say, okay, that was so agreeing. Was that to me? Okay. I was going to another book, but let's go. Three, verse four. If someone else uh, thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. It's basically if they think they have status. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. His argument is extremely well thought out and comprehensive. He says a lot in a few lines there. By saying that he is a Jew circumcised on the eighth day, he's saying he wasn't converted. He wasn't converted. He wasn't a Jew that then became a practicing Jew. He was born into a practicing Jew family that kept the Jewish religion. They kept with it. And so from the time he was born, he was born into this status. He is a Jew from birth. Not only that, but because he's practicing, because he is circumcised, the greatest symbol of a practicing Jew Uh, It is something that uh, he belongs to, and he is devout in it. There were Jews that were not practicing or semi-devout. There were proselytes that were converted and became circumcised as adults, not on the eighth day. They, They came into it later in life. There's this sense of belonging. Furthermore, we get this idea because we read the Bible, and Jesus is always getting in debates with the Pharisees. We kind of think Pharisees were everywhere. They weren't. They're actually a really small group of people. They lived primarily in and around Jerusalem, and they were the most devout, uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews of their day. They kept to the law very tightly. They found themselves as being uh, teachers of the law, the specialists, the one to tell everybody else. That's their authority that they bristle against Jesus so much with. So among this group that's already isolated, few could say they stomped out heresy, and yet among Pharisees, Paul could say such a thing. I'm not just a Pharisee, but I, when I was a Pharisee, I stomped out the Jesus cult, as they called it. So his hand is on top, so that he can discredit it. Sort of a, you, you say you want to be on top, I'm on top, and let me tell you what the view is from up here. The top is stupid. There's no point of being up here. All this, all this stuff that he says is about what he says next... He's beat them at their own game, and as so, he gets to um, reestablish its rules. And we'll get to verse 7 now. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage There is this higher truth that matters. Nothing in our lives can matter as much as the simple gospel. And with all the, Of all the things we develop, of all the things that are so important to know and to practice the way the reality of God and the Holy Spirit and his ministry in our life would direct every little detail. Of all the things that we have to our name to have Christ sacrifice for us that our sins would be erased and, our, and eternal hope would be ours is the greatest thing. For that one thing, everything else is meaningless to him. In fact, the word he uses for garbage is a term that means uh, to scraps that are good to be thrown to dogs. So you'd be cleaning an animal or cleaning out something, and everything that is worthless you would throw to dogs. And these were things that his entire life was built around. Things that, that, that from the time he was born was building up to this point of having the status of a Pharisee and a respected person, a Benjamite, a Jew among Jews, teacher of, among teachers, and all of this is meaningless to him with what he's found. You know, I think one of the main fears that whispers in our ears when we start to follow Christ is, how much is this going to cost me? How much am I going to have to give up? How much is going to have to be taken away? And if you're afraid you won't have the strength to give things up, hear this. The more you come to know Christ, the less attractive, useless things begin to look. In the same way, giving up gas station junk food is awfully easy to do in your favorite restaurant. As we get to know Christ, as we get to see things that are of actual value and grapple with the depth of that, the little things that we thought, oh, I'll never be able to give that up. That means too much to me are things that we give up easily. There's an experiential sense of what Paul is saying here. In short, the, the way he refers to, uh, he counts it all as loss for the sake of Christ. There's a verb there used in what in Greek is called the perfect tense. It means a thing that's happened in the past that keeps having repercussions on you now. You can imagine like a, a huge ball thrown into a pool. It hit. That's, that's what happened. But the waves just keep hitting you as it bounces off the pool walls over and over and over again. Paul has experienced something that keeps renewing in his experience as Life is going on. This phrase could be translated, as I experienced the truth of God, I realized these things were always worthless. It's an experience that he's had of life going on and being alongside God and things seeming like the world grows grayer and grayer and God grows brighter and brighter. Years ago, um, when I was a new youth pastor, I had a grumbling issue that happened in the youth group. A lot of criticism was being fired back at me, and it was a really hard time. And what had motivated me so much at that point, because I was young and immature, was praises from people. I wanted people to say, he's doing so good. He's doing really well. And when I started to get all this criticism coming back at me, And due to confidentiality and things, I couldn't set the record straight, and so I was getting blamed for things that I knew for a fact that I shouldn't be getting blamed for. I had this moment where I realized people's opinions don't actually matter a lot. They can be ignorant in their criticisms, and they can be ignorant in their praise and in their flattery. The opinion parlor of outsiders mattered a whole lot less to me after that point. And this is something that once motivated my ministry choices. When I first started thinking, we'll put on a retreat, it'll be super successful, and I will look successful to outsiders. This, this motivated every decision, and yet, as this undulating process of being with God, these renewing things, this experience goes on, I realize that's, that's really pointless. I'm really glad that I had those hard years right in the beginning, because as time went on, I began to plan and do things that... It wouldn't matter what people thought, all that really mattered were the the students in our youth group and how they would be blessed by the decisions that we made. Paul was a Pharisee from his youth and brought up from a great purpose. This means that he would have gone to like Pharisee academy, training under rabbis. His whole life as a child would have been this thing of, I really, wanna, I really want to gain the approval of Rabbi so-and-so. I want to be honored the way they honor. And they had a very nice hierarchical political structure that made you want to keep going up and escalating and getting more uh, recognized. He lived to please Pharisees. In fact, they say that for him to be, a, to be a Pharisee brought up in it, it would have been impossible for him not to be in an arranged marriage. That was typical. You were to be married to a nice Jewish girl from an established family, that the Pharisee's family would be stable. They all were arranged. And we know for a fact from his letters, Paul is famously single, saying to a church at one time, I wish you were all single and unmarried like me so you could serve Christ all the more. Hyperbolically, marriage is very important. But we know that he was single, which means that Something happened without agreement. When he's introduced to the story, he's holding coats at a stoning of a Christian, and then he's immediately entrusted to go north and carry out persecution, meaning those two details tell us something about that phase in Paul's life. It was his coming of age. Too young to take place in that persecution, but seen old enough to where now you're old enough, mission number one, you were to go north and persecute the Christians there. At that critical point in his life, after everything he'd worked for, all his youth, all his time in Pharisee Academy, all of his time arranging and planning his life, what it was going to be, right when he was ready to take hold of it, it gets swatted out of his hands. He's not married, meaning that when he probably converted to Christianity, it was so offensive that the other family broke off the marriage agreement. He would have likely been disowned from the family he was born in. He never really speaks of his his mother or father or his family, but we get the idea that they had nothing to do with his life after that. He would have been dead to them. And yet he lives this life with Christ, doing these things, gripping with it at such a great level, that even those things just seem like loss. They just seem like things that are worth cutting off, the waste that when he's dissecting his life, what do they mean? These are the things that are worth being thrown to dogs for the sake of knowing Christ. We're changed as we remain with him. I can't think of many people that change like Paul. I mean, we're talking to a guy that when he was Saul, When that was his name, when that was who he was, when he lived that life before, he had everything against him, everything against his heart motivation, the core of him, his character, to to be the absolute opposite of who he was. But as he dwelled with Christ, he was changed, or changed as we remained with him, living with God, rejoicing with God, suffering as Christ suffered these things, they straighten out our values. They produce holiness. They convince young youth pastors to quit doing stuff to please other people and what they'll think about them. Imagine you, you see someone with a coat. You want them to take it off. You could scream. You could yell. You could demand. You could even pin them down and try to rip it off them if you're strong enough. But if you were to invite them into your home where it's warm, eventually they're going to take that coat off. That's Christianity. Christianity that God draws us near to him and we're with him until we take off things that we once said we weren't going to take off. We live with Christ, we commune with the Holy Spirit, and we take off those worthless garments as we live deeper. We take off those worthless things even if it is a battle to get them off. That our motivation changes as we're with Jesus. This is a, an, an incredibly transformative thing. Because a dream drives us. You see, the joy is to know God, as he says in verse 10. He says, uh, I want to know Christ. He has to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. In the Old Testament, this is one of the highest goals, to know God. One of the greatest things a person could look for. And after Christ, we find that his Holy Spirit is poured out on all mankind in a way that is is totally unprecedented. Essentially, what it is, is that by being made clean by his blood, we can now be empowered with the Holy Spirit like prophets of old could hear and relate and fellowship with God. That By being made clean, by being allowed to come into his presence, we're changed. We can be with him and we can know him. There's a prophecy about our times. Our times now, biblically speaking, our time is from the time Christ resurrected to now, we are in the same epoch of belonging and place. This is the time. This is the post-cross world. And this is, this is that new covenant age, the post-cross world that Jeremiah prophesies of in 31 when he says, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Why can they know him? Because he forgets their wickedness and forgives their sins. Our nearness to God, you see, is the thing that purifies us for hope. So now he's one. His hand's on top. He makes everybody cheer. And this is, this is the hope that he gives, the forging forward. Not that I've already obtained all this, knowing Christ in the fullness, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which—excuse uh, me—I take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, brothers and sisters. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do: forgetting what is behind me and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus Christ. For Paul, he didn't feel that he truly knew him. He recognized that he was in between. And yet he has the satisfaction with his life. He believed that spiritually he's being built up and that spiritually he was quite eroded. That he was on his way there, but not there. We are on our way. We've been talking about a quieted soul to be quieted in our soul. That's been our series of having a sense of peace and belonging to where we are in life and easing into God. And there's sometimes I think that we, th- we wait for a certain time for that to be prudent when it happens immediately because this is the prudent time. After the cross is the prudent time. That's the biggest thing that will ever happen to you in the eternal existence of your soul. Being forgiven for your sins eternally is the greatest thing that'll ever happen to you. It's been done. A a soul, it's not attained as if we win the game of life, as if by some conquering king we've completed everything, we've won it all, now I can sit and be at rest. That right now, though there are still battles to be fought and places to go, things to forge ahead into, we can rest and be in Jesus and be contented because there is a king who conquered all things, and the battle is done. It is so critical to remember that core thing, that simple gospel and the power of it. There's a man named Philip Bliss. He invested heavily in real estate in Chicago, and he invested in it in 1873. And if you know, that's a bad time to invest in property in Chicago because the Chicago fire destroyed nearly everything. He lost all the places that he invested in. He's walking through the ashes and cinders of it. He was, uh, he was an investor, but he also wrote hymns, and he was a, he was a missionary, and he was invited In all of this hardship and turmoil to go to London and preach with a very famous uh, missionary named Moody. And he was going to go meet with him. And as they're getting ready to go on the boat, things are packed. He gets called into a business meeting. They had to straighten out some details about more of his properties that got burned. So he decides he's going to send his wife and three daughters ahead of him on the boat. And he will come and catch up with them later. But when they were in the Atlantic, the boat struck another boat. And it sank so fast that when his wife got to London, she sent him a telegram with only two words. Saved alone. And so realizing that all three of his daughters drowned in the Atlantic, he he sets out immediately to go be with his grieving wife, and they could grieve together in London. And he has this heartbreaking moment where he realizes the portion of the ocean he's coming across is where the collision happened. And that is where he wrote the hymn that we all know him for. I previewed, I was talking to some people about this sermon yesterday. I'm going to cry, so let's get into it, shall we? the hymn we all know, we're familiar with. And this is when he wrote, It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has... Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his blood for my own soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. The song goes on and on, but he'll conclude talking about when the trump sounds and when the resurrection takes place and i'm sure when he wrote that he thought of seeing his girls again what compares to the hope of christ for philip bliss to come to that point and to realize that as terrible as everything was that losing everything he had ever invested losing everything that mattered to him even more in his his girls to be forgiven, to have eternal hope, eternal hope of seeing his girls again, that the worst of the worst is nailed to the cross at the ways made forward to eternal hope. This is the kind of hope that makes a soul quiet, even in the middle. This is the song he wrote when he went over that very portion of water, knowing that his daughters are at the bottom of that watery grave. That even in the middle of heartache, we can be quieted in our soul when we realize as hard as it gets, the greatest enemy of our life lay slain. The sin, the guilt, the damnation is gone. Nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. We have so many matters we worry about and desires, but what compares to that immense mountain that's moved? That your sins are nailed to the cross and that God is yours that you have the most important hope in all of human existence. If we're talking about how to have a quieted soul, how important it is to never get beyond the simple Sunday school lesson, Jesus died for you. That the greatest thing is that simple gospel. The best you have is Christ on the cross and you forgiven. all that could put us on top, everything that we could want to gain to go upward, it's worthless, scraps to be thrown out when compared to that. Never lose sight of that. Fix your eyes on the promises that remain and the hope that you have in Christ, and we could sing like this other uh, hymn says. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full into his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I think at that point, our soul will be quieted and rest in Jesus like a child weaned, like a mature spirit and faithful peace with him. I want to have a chance for us to pray for two things. One, the simple gospel is an invitation that always goes out, that if you, the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness is one that we receive, that we say yes to, that I want to be part of that. If you're coming here today and you've never accepted that gift from Christ, you've never uh, dedicated your life, that transformation is yet to begin. I think today is your day. I think today is the day that the biggest thing that'll ever get solved in your existence gets solved right now. Christ died for us to have atonement. It's a free gift and we can say, yes, Lord, I'll respond to that. But when we do, we don't just receive it. We receive it with a trade. I am yours. I will be with you and it is a trade so incredibly in our favor. We're talking about the, the, the things that still plague us, the things that still pressure us as we even leave this building, that as we're with Christ, as we're with him, we take those things off like coats in a warm room, as we fellowship and we're near God forever, as we grow with him. The change goes beyond even what we receive on the day of first salvation. And for those of us that need the renewal, we'll also, I'm also gonna be praying for us that we could be renewed in our faith in that simple gospel, to just sit in the grace of God again and know that all of it, and I love that line, my sin not in part but in whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more, that not in part, not a little bit, not enough to get you by, but in whole is nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. You could bow your heads and close your eyes. We're gonna pray. If you're feeling called to make that response today, there's only one simple thing is we'll all be praying together, but I want you to acknowledge that. I want, I, I want you to put your hand up right now. If that's you and you have not received that salvation, you haven't said, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. I receive the gift from the cross. If that's you, I want to give you that chance. So uh, right now you can put your hand up. I'm not going to call you out. You're not going to be uh, called for it in any way, but we'll be praying together. we're going to pray together to celebrate together the enormous moment this is in the lives of those who get to experience a great thing today. So I want everyone uh, in here to repeat after me. Jesus, I accept the gift of the cross and I give my life to you. Be the shepherd of my life. Lead me all the days of my life. And thank you that my sins are forgotten, and my, mistake, my mistakes will never be remembered. Amen. And Lord, I pray for those of us in here that we have had time that guilt has gotten in the way. We feel separated from you. It's like we almost forgot that the core of the gospel is the forgiveness of sins, the ability to draw near to God, to be made clean, that our hope doesn't come from getting away from you and getting cleaned up, but coming to you in our state, knowing that you have made us clean. And if you've made us clean in the spirit, you can make us clean in behavior. You can make us clean in our homes and in our families. God, I pray that we could draw in closer with you, get in further, God. I pray that it would reinvigorate families, would it reignite our spirit of hope, As we see you change things again, Lord, I pray that all of the doubt and all of the guilt and all the shame that keeps us away from you, we would remember those things have been dealt with. The greatest enemy of our life lay slain. Sin and death has no grip on us anymore. So let us draw near to you, get close to you, listen to the Holy Spirit, expect your mercy, expect your grace, expect your life-giving power to be with us, that we could be changed forever, every day, more and more as we experience Lord, we lift up those things that we say, God, I don't think I can let that go. I don't think I can get to a spot where that's no longer with me. Where we feel the invitation, come in, come inside, come be with me. And there's gonna come a time that I will show you just how worthless that is. It won't look shiny, it won't smell good anymore, and you will put it down. Lord, we hear the invitation of the Spirit today. Let us respond as we draw near to you and that our relationship with you would be more intimate than it ever was, more connected than it ever was, and more faith in that grace that it is the way you declare it to be. I thank you, God. Amen.